Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I'd like to ask you to get your Bibles out. Turn to Mark chapter 12. We are going to be finishing up the Gospel of Mark this morning, which means that next week, uh, Lord willing that we are all here with the coronavirus, by the way, uh, we will start Mark chapter 13. Just so you know, Mark chapter 13 is without doubt the most difficult chapter in the entire Gospel of Mark. It is Jesus uh, giving details about the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world. So I would encourage you to read ahead on Mark chapter 13, and when you find yourself a little confused, start praying for me and for Pastor Jordan as we get ready to have to preach it. So it'll be certainly a good challenge for us, but I think it'll be very helpful. So hopefully by now you have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 12. Go ahead and stand out of reverence for God's Word as we read verse 38 to the end of the chapter. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation." And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. Now, since Jesus has been in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, have been trying to eliminate him. We've seen this in this 12th chapter. First, they tried a number of public confrontations with him, and they, they lost completely. Then they regrouped and tried a series of more private, uh, covert confrontations with him, sending three delegations to him. You'll remember a delegation of Pharisees, and then a delegation of Sadducees, and, a, and a, then lastly, a lone scribe. And all those delegations were asking what appeared to be innocent questions, but they were actually trick questions designed to trap Jesus. And Jesus avoided all of their traps. Then last week, we saw that Jesus turned the tables. It went from them asking questions of Jesus to Jesus asking a question of them. And Jesus went to Psalm 110, verse 1, where he showed beyond a shadow of doubt that the Messiah, the the Christ, which is what many people were beginning to realize Jesus actually was, is not just a human being, a biological descendant of David, but by prophecy, he would also be the man who is God. 
And that is where Jesus has all of his authority. That's why he's conducting himself with such great authority. He is the man who is God. Well, this morning, as we continue, what we find is um, there are two contrasts here. Two contrasts to show us what devotion to God looks like. First, we'll see the scribes. The scribes show us what fake devotion to God and fake religion looks like. And then it flips and shows us this poor widow who shows us what true devotion and true love for God actually looks like. So let's dive into the text. We have a lot of exciting stuff to cover. We'll start with the scribes. We see here the scribes were examples of fake love for God. Folks, there always has been and there always will be fake and false Bible teachers. Today, you can probably think of the names of some of them, like Kenneth Copeland or Joel Olstein, just to name a few. But in the days of Jesus, those fake Bible teachers, those false Bible teachers were actually the, the scribes. The scribes pretended to love God, but in reality, they didn't actually love God. Jesus said this, that they were busy making people twice as much a child of hell as they actually were. Now, um, let me just tell you a little bit more about this. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling council. And as we've seen in previous weeks, the Sanhedrin is made up of two primarily political, or should we call it religious, groups. There is the Pharisees, and there were the Sadducees. Some of those Pharisees were especially well-educated, they were known as the scribes. They were known as the theological lawyers. They were the, the big brains. Looked like lollipops, a brain on a stick. That's what these guys were. Now, and Jesus, he doesn't have a lot of love for these guys. Uh, we're going to see here, or actually we saw in the Gospel of Mark, that his condemnation of the scribes is sort of a, a short little section, a few verses that we read. Also in the Gospel of Luke, his condemnation of the scribes is a short section. But if you happen to go to the Gospel of Matthew and look at the parallel account, Matthew really records much more of what Jesus said at this time. He, Jesus completely throws these guys under the bus, almost spends the entire 23rd chapter of Matthew talking about Jesus' condemnation of the scribes. Now, we're not going to have the time this morning to go through Matthew 23 because it's just one shot after another. Jesus just pummels these guys, senseless. Uh, but rather than go to Matthew 23 for a long time, I'd like to go to Matthew 23 for a very short time, just show you one verse from that chapter that sort of summarizes the major problem that Jesus has with the scribes. And it's this. They are very concerned about being or looking religious on the outside, but not actually having a genuine love for God on the inside. We can see this in Matthew 23, verse 27. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You guys are so concerned with looking good in front of others on the outside, 
But the reality is, is inside your heart is greed, is filth, is rottenness, is corruption. It's like a tomb that looks good on the outside, but it has rotting flesh on the inside. That is what it's like in your life. Now, knowing that is the primary problem with these scribes, that'll help us as we dive into the Gospel of Mark, because we'll see that theme just hammered home again and again. Let's begin here on the top. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplaces, and having the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. You can see all these external things here. Let's unpack what these mean. They liked walking around in long robes, it says. Now, this term that is used for robes here, if you go to the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, it, it says literally, it's the same term used, term used for royal garments or for kingly garments. We're talking long robes, fancy robes, colorful robes. This is, these guys have the dress for success mentality. They want to look really good in public. Maybe the best way I could analogize this for us is thinking about graduation robes. I'm not talking about those cheap plastic ones you get for high school graduation. I'm talking about the ones you get when you graduate with a doctorate or a PhD, and you get this bill from the college that you think you're finally done, and it's hundreds of dollars, and it's just for your robes. And you get it, and it's long and flowing and colorful, and you have to wear it at least once. Well, that's what these guys are like, but they don't wear it once. They wear it all the time around public. Can you imagine how this would draw attention to themselves as they walk around with these flowing robes? Another thing that it doesn't say in this text, but it tells us in other texts that they like to do, is they like their prayer shawls. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you'll know some of this. A prayer shawl is a long, sort of rectangular piece of cloth that they would take and put over their heads. And uh, on the end of those prayer cloths, they would have tassels. Let me tell you a little bit of background about that. It's in Numbers 15 that tells that the Jewish people were to have tassels on the end of their clothing, sort of small little blue ones. But over time, uh, the religious people began putting tassels on their prayer shawls. And then it became sort of a competition because who was more spiritual than the other? Let's have longer tassels. Let's have bigger tassels. Let's have wider tassels. So the picture is you have these guys walking around in these graduation robes with this small piece of rug over their head with long tassels on it that look like mini baseball bats that are whacking around as they walk. I think it looks sort of funny, but they thought it made them look really impressive, really religious. By the way, that longer tassels, you can find that being referenced once again in Matthew 23. It says, and they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, and there it is, and their fringes long. That's the tassels. And why they look good on the outside, the problem is, is when you look in their heart and what their relationship with God is really like, it's like opening an empty garbage can. There is just nothing on the inside. But boy, do they look good. 
The other thing they loved is they liked being greeted in the marketplace. Now, the Jewish Torah says that uh, whenever a Jew was to uh, come before someone who had greater knowledge of Torah, they were to address that person with respect, which sounds normal. But what that really played out in all practicality is people would address these scribes as master. They would address them as rabbi. They had a title in front of their name. And boy, they ate that title up. Sort of like we do with a doctor. We say, Dr. Such and Such. It's a term of respect because of their great education. And that's the same thing that went on for these guys. The other thing that the uh, Torah tells us is that when a, uh, a scribe walked down the road, out of respect for them, people would stand up in their presence. So you had these guys with these long graduation gowns and the rug over top of their head with the tassels that look like fabric baseball bats bouncing around, walking down the road, and you have sort of a wave where people are standing out of respect for them as they go by and then sitting after they've passed by. And these guys, they love it. I mean, they are eating this attention up. Can you see how this starts to stroke their ego and build their ego? When in reality, there's nothing on the inside. Now, by the way, I was thinking about this. We see some of these very same scribal deferences echoed in some of today's modern churches, don't we? For instance, there are some churches out there where the religious leaders are to be addressed as father, father such and such. Or even in the evangelical church, maybe people out of deference and respect sometimes address me or others as pastor, pastor such and such. And that's okay, I'll, I'll take that. I remember the first time somebody addressed me as pastor, it was when I was pretty young. I had just finished seminary. I was still wearing flip-flops and tie-dye at the time. I was a youth pastor, and I wasn't prepared for somebody actually calling me pastor. I'm like, wow, that was just a, a strange feeling. Um, this is the way I figure it, guys. You know, uh, when Jesus was on earth, what did they call him? Jesus. When Paul was on earth, what did they call Paul? Paul. So just call me by my first name. I'm totally okay with that. A couple other thoughts here. They wanted the most important seats in the synagogues. Uh, how this worked in the synagogue was you had the people on one side, then you had uh, the, the scrolls in the ark, and then behind that you had a bench. And on that bench, only the senior elders could sit, the guest speakers, and guess who else? The scribes. They had the special seat that was above the people where they could look down on the people, which once again helped to continue to stroke their ego. Now, by the way, I remember the first time I actually sat uh, on the platform instead of in the congregation. It was in high school. They were recruiting for choir at the time, and we had a choir loft. And so I got recruited, I uh, sat in the choir loft, and for the first time I saw the back of the pastor's head. 
and I got a chance to look at people in the congregation, which was a sort of really strange thing to do. By the way, just so you know, I was only in the choir for a very brief period of time, because once they heard me sing in mercy, they removed me from the choir. Just honest and truthful there. But then after I became a pastor, I've also preached in other churches where they do have those benches on the stage, and you have to, to sit there. And I have to tell you, it's really no fun to sit in those benches. You can't slouch. You can't check your watch if somebody's going long. I mean, you have to be like in perfect posture the whole service. Yeah. But for some people, when they sit in those benches, it sort of strokes their ego because I'm above the people. I can look down on the people. I'm more religious than the rest of the people. And that is what the scribes were giving into, making them feel better about themselves. Well, the other thing we see here is they love the places of honor at feasts. They would have in that day large gatherings and didn't have coronavirus to worry about, so you didn't have to worry about keeping gatherings under 250. But what they would do is the, the, many of the gatherings were sort of like a, a wedding reception. You had a head table, which the most dignified and honored guests would be there. And what do you think the scribes were doing with one another? Arguing over which one of them was the greatest and who should be sitting at the head table. Once again, it was all about public recognition, all about people looking up to them, but the reality was that on inside of them, there was very little spiritual life going on whatsoever. Now let me give you a, a little quick application here along the way. I was thinking about this. When people are spiritually empty on the inside, you see a lot of symbolism and ritual develop on the outside. When people are spiritually empty on the inside, you will see a lot of symbolism and ritual develop on the outside. Long robes, long tassels, special titles, special seats, special greetings, because there's really nothing going on in the heart. Now, let's move on from a little bit to, well, let's continue. Let's look at one more thing. They prayed long prayers. That's the next verse. Who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Let's start with the part about for pretense, which is for show, they would make long prayers. In other words, the longer they prayed, the more spiritual they looked, or at least that's what they, they thought. So they had to have a long prayer time. Matthew chapter 6, by the way, also tells us they would like to go to street corners and they would pray publicly out loud on street corners. Now, why are they doing that? So they look religious? So they look prestigious? Matthew chapter 6 also tells us that what they would do is they would oftentimes say the same thing over and over and over and over again in their prayers. Sometimes we even hear that today. You know, sometimes when we hear people pray, they use, yes, Jesus, praise Jesus, hallelujah, Jesus, is about every third word instead of a simple conversation with God. Now, that may not necessarily mean that their hearts are trying to appear spiritual. 
but sometimes people do those things to appear more spiritual than they actually are. Well, I like to think of it this way. These scribes are like spiritual peacocks. Uh, they, they have their plumage up. They love to sort of walk around and make everybody look at them. Well, we're going to move from the fact they're not just spiritual peacocks, but they're actually also spiritual parasites. Parasites get a hold of a host. They live off a host until they kill the host. And that's also what they were doing. It says they devoured widows' houses. What does that mean? First thing we need to know is the Bible is very clear that God has a very special place in his heart for widows and for fatherless children. Those are the most weak and vulnerable in society. And look what the scriptures say about this. These kind of verses, by the way, are all over the place. There's an abundance of them. Exodus 22, 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. But these supposedly religious people are busy devouring widows' houses, not protecting widows and their house. So how would they be able to do this? What they were doing was abusing the generosity and the hospitality of old and vulnerable widows. They took advantage of their kindness and they preyed on them. The way this worked is you need to know it was forbidden for scribes to be paid. So they survived on subsidies, very similar to what we do with missionaries today. You know, how we give them subsidies so they can do their work. So it was, it was considered meritorious for people to help subsidize a scribe, but it was especially meritorious if you single-handedly underwrote all of the living expenses of a scribe. And sometimes you would have widows, maybe wealthy widows, who live in a big house, whose husband had passed away, whose children had moved away, and they are trying to follow God, and they have this empty house, and they have some resources, and they want to do good, and so they say, well, I'll help underwrite you. You can live with me. And these scribes were literally eating these widows out of house and home, taking advantage of their grace, taking advantage of their kindness, and probably taking their credit card and maxing it out at the store. And so you can see how Jesus is so frustrated with this. As I studied this more, I learned that one of the other things they would do is because of their great education, they would sometimes help widows with their legal matters. And they would sort of um, craft things in the legal matters to put themselves in the will. Other things they would do is they would sometimes um, actually um, take advantage of widows that were going senile, that were going elderly. You know how telemarketers like to do that? They always want to call you and try and trick you out of your cash. 
Well, the telemarketer in the ancient world was the scribe. And he was trying to t they were trying to take advantage of these elderly and mentally fading widows by taking their money and their resources. Now, here's what Jesus says about them. They will be judged harshly. Last week, Jesus said true religion is loving God and loving our neighbor. Here we find the scribes who don't actually really know God, and they're busy taking advantage of the most weak and vulnerable neighbors in the community. Do you see why Jesus is so frustrated with this? And if you want to find a modern-day analogy for what these ancient-day scribes are like, here's what I think it is. Prosperity preachers. They're empty in their heart on the inside. They don't genuinely know God. They walk around like peacocks, trying to look really good in the eyes of people, but they're actually parasites, stealing money and taking money that isn't theirs by preaching a false gospel. The scribes of the ancient world and the prosperity preachers of the modern world are one and the same thing. Peacocks and parasites trying to take away people's life. Now let's flip to the other side. We've seen what false devotion to God looks like. Let's look at what genuine devotion to God looks like. The poor widow was an example of genuine love for God. And it starts with this. Many rich people gave an offering at the temple. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. Just so you know, the, the temple was a place where people uh, oftentimes gave their offerings, and there was a lot of money in the temple. Sometimes the rich people um, actually would store their money in the temple, letting it serve as a bank. Their thinking was that a sacred space was actually a safe space. So the temple served as a bank, plus it's a place where people gave a lot of their money, especially during Passover, as worship to God. I learned this week that there was actually a person in charge of the treasury in the temple. He was called a Gazoflanks, and he was only the only person that was above him in authority in the temple was the chief priest himself. So you had a special financial guy just dedicated to these temple pieces. Now, Jesus has sat down in the temple, and it, he has sat down in the court of the women. Go ahead, Jeremy, and give me that graphic right there. Uh, if you remember in our study earlier, you know the temple is actually sort of like concentric rooms. In the center of the temple is the Holy of Holies where God dwells. And you go out a little further is the place where the priests could go, then a place where the men can go. And a little further out where we have that circle is a place where it's called the women's courtyard where men and women could go. And the Mishnah tells us that there were 13 offering boxes in the court of the women. And they're called shofar chests. And 13 different chests because they had 13 different ways you could give your money. So like women's ministry, children's ministry, you know, you can give it that way. But it's called shofar because shofar in Hebrew means trumpet. So what you do is you have to realize they have these metal trumpets on the top where it's wide at the top of the funnel and narrow at the bottom of the funnel. It's very similar to the um, 
sort of the wishing well you have at Walmart. You know, you put the penny in and it spins around for a while and eventually goes to the bottom. Uh, maybe not that big, but that's the same idea. Except these funnels are made of metal. So when you have somebody who's rich that comes along and they want to give their offering, you could really tell who the big givers were because they heard all the money going down the trumpet. So you heard a lot of rattle and clattle. But in this particular case, we find somebody who doesn't make much noise at all. A poor widow. A poor widow put in all she had to live on. And the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now the Greek here says she put in what's called a lepton. Go ahead and give us that graphic, Jeremy. Lepton in Greek literally means a tiny thing. That is a lepton. It is a small copper sort of penny, almost like a, a shaving. Incidentally, um, in Rome, they don't even have a lepton because their smallest currency is actually bigger than a lepton. And so this lepton is only used in um, the area of Israel. And you wonder, it says it's less than a penny. That may not be totally accurate. For the best, um, the best information that I was able to research this week is that it was worth, one lap time was worth about eight minutes work in a day when you're getting paid minimum wage. So it's not much money at all. You can't even go buy a Pepsi with these things. That is how small it is. And this lady... What does she do? She puts in these two small leptons, and all you can hear is a tink, tink in the metal funnel. Right after people have put in tons of money and made all kinds of noise. And here's what Jesus says. The point is that God cares about the size of the sacrifice more than the size of the gift. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus was more impressed with her small gift than with the rich people's large gift. The rich people who put money in that offering box had plenty of money left over when they were done. That widow, the vulnerable widow, the kind that the scribes want to take advantage of, who has nothing, she put in everything she had to live on and would have to trust God to survive to get her next meal. And so here we see what genuine love for God looks like. Genuine love for God is not seen by special clothing, special titles, special seats. Genuine love for God is seen by one who joyfully sacrifices for God and lets that sacrifice even touch their wallet. You know, it's true for us as well, isn't it? When our heart is filled with gratitude to God, we will joyfully sacrifice things in worship and honor to God. Now, what do I mean by that? There's a variety of things. When our heart is filled with gratitude to God, maybe 
we're going to sacrifice some friendships. Friendships with people that we know are pulling us away from Jesus. So maybe we have to choose to be without some friends. Maybe we have to choose to be alone. But you know, it's worth the sacrifice to honor and love God. Maybe it's going to change our career choices. Maybe instead of having a super lucrative career that pulls us away from God, maybe we're going to choose to have a less lucrative career that allows us to do some more work for God. Maybe it means we're going to embrace persecution. Because as Christians, throughout history, as Christians have been faithful for Christ, they've had to embrace persecution for Christ. And yes, genuine love and gratitude to God shows up in the way it hits our wealth and our wallet. Now let me make a couple of let me make two observations, and I wanted to get into some really practical application for us this morning. First observation. These pictures represent extreme ends of the spectrum. The scribes, who are all about being a peacock and are busy ripping people off, those are an example of people who are really far from God, but trying to appear like they're actually genuinely in love with God. It's an extreme example. The other extreme example is this widow who put everything she had to live on in the offering plates and had to trust God for her next meal. The scriptures do not say that that is what God wants each one of us to do. They don't say that. What it should do for us is say we're on a journey of becoming less like the scribes who are all interested in external things and more like this widow who are willing to trust God and sacrifice in gratitude to Him. The next observation I'd like to make is this. There is always a link between our faith and our finances. What we spend and what we keep says a massive amount of who we are spiritually. There is no way we can have Jesus as Lord of our life and he does not impact the way we spend money with our wallet. There is no way we can say we trust Jesus with our life, but we don't trust Jesus with our money. They have to go together. Look at some of these things in Scripture. 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Christians, they respond by helping their brother in need. Or how about this one, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, which is really the one I want to focus in on for part of the rest of our message. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. As Christians, we are to grow in our faith in God. We are to grow also in our knowledge of God. But we are also to grow in our giving to God. Now, let me just get very practical here. Let me jump down to point four. What should we know about generosity at crosswinds? Number one, you need to know that giving 
here at Crosswings is not something we have to do. Giving here at Crosswinds is something we get to do. Jesus says it is always more blessed to give than to receive. I like to think of it this way. You ever watch The Price is Right? You think it would be cool to be on The Price is Right and win and get all these things? Let me tell you, better than being on The Price is Right and getting things is being a giver. There is more joy in giving than there is in getting. Now, when we talk about generosity, by the way, I am not trying right now to get something from you. I'm trying to give something to you. The Bible tells us that there is great joy that comes with generosity, and there is great blessing that comes with generosity. So my goal is that you would be a joyful and blessed person that comes about through your generosity. Now let me just look at giving at crosswinds from four different angles. Here we go. Very candid here. Some Christians attend crosswinds, but we have no record of their giving to crosswinds. Let me put it to you this way. Of regular attenders who attend crosswinds, and we name tags here almost every weekend, 44% of those, we have no record of them giving to crosswinds. Of members who are members of Crosswinds Church, 27% of those, we have no record of them ever giving to Crosswinds Church, even though they're members. Now, membership, when we go through membership class, there is a statement in the covenant to membership that says this, to give regularly, proportionately, generously, and cheerfully for the work of the Lord to Crosswinds Church. So that concerns me more when more than one in every four members of the church aren't abiding by this covenant, which they have agreed to. Now, as soon as I talk about giving, many people say, aren't you afraid to talk about giving? Because aren't you afraid to talk about money? I'm not afraid to talk about this. This is not a financial issue, folks. This is a spiritual issue. This is a heart issue. For me to not speak about this would be very unloving. Let me be very candid. Anyone who claims to be in a relationship with Christ for any period of time, but there has been no response in the way of giving to Christ and his kingdom, the honest truth is they probably have fake faith, not genuine faith. That's true. When Christ takes over lordship in our life, he changes everything about our life. Doesn't he change the way we think? Doesn't he change the way we speak? Doesn't he change our values? Doesn't he change the things we love? How can he not change the way we handle our money? How can he not change the way we value and the things we, we give? If someone claims to love Christ but has no desire to give to Christ, really it's questionable if they actually have a relationship with Christ. Now, I realize there are people who are in very difficult financial situations, so that's okay. Let's just talk about this. Many people will say, well, I can't give to Christ because I don't have a big enough budget. So let's talk about this a little bit. Many times when Christians don't give, the issue may not be the budget. 
it may be the fact they don't actually trust God to provide for their needs. The Bible consistently talks about something called first fruits giving, that we give God what is first and we give God what is best. We don't give him what is last and what is left over. And I can speak to this, and maybe many others in this room could speak to this, that if you give God what is left over at the end of the month, there's going to be nothing there. But when you give God first what he has laid on your heart to give to him, you trust him and he carries you through the rest of that month and he provides for your needs. So sometimes uh, people say, well, I don't have enough money. I, I, I can't give. Maybe it's because you need to try first roots giving, not last and leftover giving, because God will provide for your needs. Another thing to think about is this. Giving is a form of worship. Worship is a way of saying, God, you are worth this to me. Anybody who gives, would they choose to put money in the offering plate or do other things with, to, with God, in God's kingdom with that money, they are saying that Christ and his kingdom is worth more to me than these other things I am not spending that money on. Sometimes when you struggle to find the ability to give, you need to say, well, what can I worship God with? What can I do without? And give him that money as an act of worship to at least get myself started. Like maybe I could do without Hulu. <laughs> maybe I could cancel Netflix. Maybe I could choose not to go out to eat once a week and actually just pack a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And all of a sudden, what do you find? $25. That's a place to begin giving. may not be the place to end giving, but it's a place to start giving. Because Jesus Christ is worth it. Let me move to the next category. Some Christians attending crosswinds give sporadically, not proportionately. The Bible says that we should give planfully and proportionately. It says, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. The first day of the week, as he may prosper in proportion to how God has blessed you. Now, I know some of you don't give on a weekly basis. Some of you give on a monthly basis. Some of you give on a quarterly basis. It's okay. That's the same principle. It's planful. It's regular and it's proportionate. But sporadic giving, occasional giving, is not what God's desire is for our giving. Now let's go to the next one. Some Christians attending crosswinds give a tithe. Now for some, the tithe is considered sort of the, the holy grail of giving, giving 10% of their income. But I would encourage you to think of it this way. A tithe is a great floor, but it's not ever intended to be the stopping ceiling. Tithing, by the way, it, there's a lot of misinformation running around around that. There is no place, by the way, in the New Testament where Christians are commanded to give a tithe of their income. Just so you know. It's in the Old Testament. In fact, you find in the Old Testament, tithes talked about many times. The tithe is what provided for the Levites, who were the ones that were doing the work in the temple. And actually, if you add it up, there was multiple tithes in the Old Testament. About 23% of their income was given in tithes. 
Part of it was to provide for the income of the Levites. Part of it was to provide for the government work. And the other part was to provide for their welfare system. So that tithing is in the Old Testament, but it is not necessarily in the New Testament. In the New Testament, this is what we are to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, let me just summarize this. That our giving should be in response to have gratitude for God's grace. Our giving should be in response as with gratitude for God's grace. The more we grow in gratitude to God's grace and what he has done for us through Jesus Christ and who we will be through all eternity as the most blessed beings in the universe through Jesus Christ, completely forgiven for all of our sin by Jesus Christ, the more our heart grows in gratitude, the more our lives should grow in giving. That's what it is. Giving is a response to gratitude. And what Paul says is, the question is maybe not necessarily what is the right percentage, but what kind of influence and impact do you want to have for God's kingdom? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What kind of impact do you want to have for Christ and his kingdom? Those who give generously have a greater impact. Those who don't give as generously have a lesser impact. It's like seed. Let me mention a few more things here, and then we'll, I'll turn this over to our worship team. It says here, each one of us must decide as he must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We give what we can joyfully give to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God will definitely make sure that he provides for givers. Now let me summarize it up and I'll stop here. Some people may give a tithe. 10%, and that is sacrificial, and that is joyful for them, and that is a good thing. For others who have been well-blessed in resources, a tithe really isn't sacrificial. They can give far more than a tithe. And for them, I would say, the more you sow, the greater harvest you will reap. That's what it is. The more you sow, the greater harvest you will reap. For others who are struggling to even give a tithe, I would say, wrestle. Is there something that we can give up out of worship to God to begin tithing? Uh, is it a matter of me trusting God or not being willing to trust God to provide for my needs? Where can I begin? Now, in the interest of time, let me go ahead and pray, and we'll turn it over to the worship team. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for learning what fake love for you looks like in the scribes and what genuine love looks like in this poor widow where she let her love and her faith in you impact her wallet. I ask that you would let um, our love for you impact our wallet and that our giving would be a response to the incredible amount of gratitude we have for your amazing grace to us through Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. 
thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.